0: I can't think of a better song to sing after what just happened and leading into what the Holy Spirit is going to show us. I love the fact that when the prophets and the apostles and the companions of the apostles, when the Scripture writers were writing, their hand was governed by God the Holy Spirit so completely and totally, that as we saw in the Sermon on the Mount, every jot and tittle of the law will, till heaven and earth have passed away, not one jot or one tittle of the law will, fail, will fall to the ground unfulfilled. Jot is a yod. That's a tiny, it's a Hebrew letter. All the Hebrew letters are the same size. If you look at, except the yod. The yod is about twice the size of an apostrophe. So write down to the smallest letter and the tittle. The tittle is just a little projection on for example on the d sound, the dalet. The the r sound just goes eesh, eesh. the dalet has a little projection. That's the only difference between those the writing of those two letters. And Jesus says write down to the spelling. Write down to the spelling it will be fulfilled. Right down to this. How complete was God's governance of the penning of his word? Right down to the spelling of the words. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 9. Let me remind you of where we have been. Jesus preached the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. He came down off of the mountain and immediately is met by a man with leprosy. Lord, if you are willing, you can cleanse me. This is the unsolvable problem. This is the unsolvable health issue in ancient times. That's why even today there are leper, our leper colonies where lepers are shoved into so that they don't contaminate the rest of the culture, the rest of the people. Even today that happens. This was the unsolvable problem. And Jesus, the one thing you're not supposed to do with lepers is touch them. What does Jesus do? He touches him and cleanses him jesus can touch a leper and not become defiled he in fact cleanses it goes the other way he cleanses the leper he can touch us in all of our filth i'm talking moral spiritual and cleanse us and leprosy in fact in the time of the ancient Israel, was used as an example or picture of sin. It's the only disease that they had that when people were healed of it, they didn't say he's healed. They said he's cleansed. Just as if sin is cleansed. And Jesus touches the leper and he is cleansed. And then he sends him off to the priest, go to Jerusalem and present yourself to the priest, so they can examine you and write out that piece of paper that says you're yes, indeed, you're cleansed. So you can show it to all your friends and neighbors as a testimony to them. And then he heals the the centurion's servant, and then he heals Peter's mother-in-law. And then that night, when the sun goes down, they bring to him all sorts of people who are possessed by demons, who are sick. And he heals all of the sick people, all the diseased people, and casts out all of the demons. He does all those things. And then he tells the disciples, we're going to get into a boat and we're going to go down across the Sea of Galilee. And they do that. And of course, they encounter the storm that is so frightening to these experienced fishermen who are experienced out on, they are scared to death and Jesus is asleep. And they come and wake up this Jesus. Don't you know we're about to die? We're about to die. What? I didn't say get in the boat, go out in the middle of the lake and drown. I say we're getting in the boat and going across the sea. Now, he doesn't say that. (laughs) It's just, but he does rebuke them for their fear and their unbelief. Why are you afraid? And he stands up and dismisses the storm and the sea calms. Now, I don't, as I indicated last week, I don't know what they were expecting. But they were shocked at what he did. Well, what else is he going to do to fix the problem? You fix the problem. He fixed the problem. They land at their destination, and here are two demon possessed men who are so rabid that we know from the Mark account and the Luke account, they'd even put chains on these men and they would broken the chains. I mean, there's nothing, and they are possessed, we know from the other accounts, by an uncountable number of. De- when Jesus asks, What is your name? the, re- the reply is Legion. Well, a legion in the Roman army was 4,000. And there's a herd of pigs over here, we know from Mark's gospel, is about 2,000 pigs. And the demons beg Jesus, if you come to torment us before the time, they know what awaits them. Be aware of that, ladies and gentlemen. God's principal enemies, Lucifer and that one third of the angels that rebelled with him. They know what awaits them. As Jesus will tell us in Matthew 25, the lake of fire was created for the devil and his angels. They know what awaits them. Have you come to torment us before the time? And they beg to be cast into the pigs. And Jesus does that. And the whole herd of pigs runs into the sea and drowns. And the pig herders who have observed this whole thing, they've heard, they've, ex- they've seen this. They've seen these two men that they could not solve this problem. Nobody could go through there without being attacked. They run back to the local town, tell everybody what happened. Everybody runs out and they tell Jesus, please go away, please go away, please go away, please go away, leave, 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 leave. What? Yeah, you lost 2,000 pigs, but I also solved this. Jesus doesn't object. Now, we know again from the other Gospels that Jesus actually sends the men back to stay there and tell how God has delivered you. But Jesus and his men, they get. But what we are seeing in this, in the Matthew account, we are seeing how people respond to the truth and i would dare say that anybody who has walked with jesus in our fallen world for any length of time and tried to tell other people the truth about the gospel of jesus christ has experienced exactly what we see experienced by jesus people who say please leave me alone no 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 and it's not because they don't know what you have to say it's because they do know what you have to say and they don't want to give up control of their lives they are addicted they are addicted to the control what they think of as the control of their own lives, they don't realize they're actually puppets (laughs) being manipulated they have an illusion of control And so they begged Jesus. They said, please go away, please go away. And so, without argument, he gets in the boat, and they go back to Capernaum. And Jesus, well, it says, chapter 9, verse 1, so he got into a boat, crossed over, and came to his own city, that's Capernaum. Then, behold, they brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son Be of good cheer. Your sins are forgiven you. They brought a paralytic, four men, brought on a stretcher, brought a paralytic to Jesus. Now, why would they bring a paralytic to Jesus? Obviously, because he wants to be healed of his paralysis. But what does Jesus see? And what we see, not only from what we already saw in chapter eight, but also in chapter nine, what we are going to see is that Jesus understands the, rea- the interior, the internal reality of every single one of us. Ah There's no faking it with Jesus. <laughs> you can't say to Jesus, "Well, let me tell you, Jesus, what's really going on and in- I already know what's going on in your mind. <laughs> I already know." but they bring this paralyzed man on a stretcher to Jesus. Son. Techno. It's actually the word for child. He's, what's he say? Why does he begin his sentence with that word? It's a, it's a statement of affection. It's a statement of affection. Son. Child. Be of good cheer. Your sins are forgiven. He came to be healed, but Jesus heals his bigger problem. He's got a much bigger problem than paralysis. But because he had the faith to ask these men, who also I would dare say have faith to carry him, because Jesus sees the faith, he says, Let's address the bigger issue first. Your sins are forgiven. And at once some of the scribes said within themselves, This man blasphemes! You see, you've got an audience here. You've got the religious leaders, the scribes. Now the scribes are the men that studied and studied and studied the Hebrew Scriptures and explained it let me change that word, misexplained it to the people in the synagogues. We've already seen in the Sermon on the Mount as Jesus has corrected their teaching. You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, which the Scripture doesn't say. And if your your righteousness doesn't surprise the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, the most revered men in the religious Community in Israel. If your righteousness doesn't surpass their righteousness, you are going where they are going to hell. (laughs) You're going to hellfire if you're not better than them. These are the most esteemed men in the religious community in Israel. And what is their response when Jesus says, Son, Your sins are forgiven. He blasphemes! Why would they say, Only God has the right to forgive sins. Well, yes, they're right. But what are they getting wrong? He is God. (laughs) He is God. He is God. Uh, Jeremiah chapter 23. I will raise up one out of the root and branch of Jesse. And this is his name by which he will be called. Jehovah Sidkenu. Yahweh, our righteousness. The Lord, our righteousness. This one out of the root and branch of David. Jesse. Read Matthew chapter one. (laughs) The genealogy of Jesus will be. God he's already in Matthew's account he's already been worshipped by the Magi he's he's worthy of worship this man blasphemes but Jesus knowing their thoughts Jesus knowing our thoughts said why do you think evil in your hearts he's talking to the religious leaders why do you think evil in your hearts i'm going to share something with you that really is a kind of a pet peeve okay because i hear christians doing it all the time not just non-christians but christians oh that's sick stop it you know where that came from I'm serious you know who who made up that that terminology Sigmund Freud because Sigmund Freud the the creator of psychiatry and psychological counseling wanted to be able to talk to wicked people about their wickedness without calling it wickedness so we'll just call it a sickness because the difference is if you're wicked you have a moral guilt that is attached to this, whereas if you're just sick that's something that needs to be fixed or healed but there's no sense that you need forgiveness, said the atheist Sigmund Freud. Christians, please, if you want to you save your pastor's temperament, if you want to not... Me- and I have to discipline myself. Stop calling what is evil and wicked sick. Because there is a moral culpability that goes with our moral choices. So call wickedness wickedness, evil evil, sin sin. God does. And He doesn't apologize for it. And in fact, if you call it less than what it is, you're giving an untrue diagnosis. Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, why do you think evil in your hearts their response was an evil response why because every evidence that they needed if evidence matters if proofs matter to you they had every reason to already know that Jesus is the creator God the God of Abraham Isaac and Jacob become flesh they've seen him heal people cleansed lepers they've seen miracle after miracle after the close of Matthew chapter 4 his renown has grown so great that people even from Syria from everywhere they have been bringing sick people to him he had by this time he has healed hundreds if not well over a thousand people they have every evidence in front of them And if they study the scriptures, and that's supposed to be their job, scribes, they're supposed to be the scripture studiers, they should, oh yes. And of course, when the Magi came to Jerusalem and told Herod the Great, uh, we've come to worship your Messiah, (laughs) the one who used to be to replace you and be the ruler, he consulted with the theologians. He said, okay, where is Messiah supposed to be born? Oh, and they immediately replied, oh, Micah 5.2 tells us, now they didn't say 5.2 because it wasn't chapter and verses, weren't but the prophet Micah tells us, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are small among all the villages of Judah, from out of you shall come forth one to be ruler among my people. Oh, whose goings forth are from of old, even from everlasting. Do you suppose that these scribes might have already investigated Jesus' life story? Do you suppose that they might already know that he was born in Bethlehem? Do you suppose they might know that Micah 5, 2 verse that came so readily to the minds of the Jewish theologians 30-some years before when the Magi showed up? but maybe they don't want to believe it because if that's true, that this Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah and he is from eternity, he is Messiah and God, I might need to make some life adjustments. (laughs) Oh, I'll say. You, Mr. Scribe, might need to repent you might need what does that word mean that means change your orientation change your outlook change your mentality well they're not into repentance according to themselves and a lot of the people in Israel they are the they are, they are the the most to be admired jewish people they already got things nailed in fact it's how they lorded over everybody else they're the experts and here Jesus is constantly rebuking them. John the Baptist before that rebuked them. You brood of vipers. This man blasphemes. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? He doesn't say, Oh no, you fellows are mistaken. Let me explain that they already know. The human race knows more than is willing to admit. Paul's letter to the Romans, the Ten Commandments is already written on their hearts. When Moses came down off Mount Sinai with the Ten Commandments, I would dare say there were no surprises on that list. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say your sins are forgiven you or to say arise and walk? but that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. Then he said to the paralytic, Arise, take up your bed, and go to your house. And he arose and departed to his house. Now, what's he saying about their thinking? Ah, here is this paralyzed fellow. And he doesn't heal his paralysis. Instead, he's distracting us from his inability to heal this fellow by saying, oh, your sins are forgiven. That would be a miracle, a thing that only God can do. But it's invisible. So we can't stand back and say, well, his sins aren't forgiven. We can't prove they weren't. But neither can Jesus prove they were. And Jesus says, oh, yes, I can. Because if I can do a visible miracle... Isn't that an authenticator to the reality that I can do the invisible miracle act that only God can do? I've actually solved his greater problem. I met his faith was met with my forgiveness, with my mercy. I forgave his sins. I love this that he says in verse six, that you may know that the son of man, their favorite term for Messiah from Daniel chapter seven, that you might know that Messiah, the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins, which means I would be God. Then he said to the paralytic. Arise. Take up your bed and go to your house. The visible miracle, proof that he had also already just done the invisible miracle. Both of them acts that only God can do. And he arose and departed to his house. Now when the multitudes saw it, they marveled and glorified God who had given such power to men. Well, Jesus is a man who is also God. And the multitudes marvel. Now we go on to the next portion and we see very much the same sort of conflict. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man named Matthew, the author of this gospel. Sitting at the tax office, and he said to him, follow me. So he arose and followed him. Now, let me point out a a stark contrast. Before Jesus got into the boat, he's in. He had been in Capernaum before he gets into the boat to cross the sea. He had two fellows come up to him. One of them said, Lord Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. Yeah, that's wonderful, but be aware of this. Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man doesn't know from one night to the next where he's going to lay his head down. So just be aware of what this, the situation will be so that you're making that commitment with your eyes wide open. And then he has another fellow that comes and says, I want to be your follower, I want to be your follower, but let me go home, Let me go. I have to fulfill my family obligations first. Now, he says I need to bury my father, but that's just a colloquial expression. His dad isn't laying on a granite slab somewhere waiting to be buried. That's not the, no. I need to fulfill all of my family obligations before I'm free to follow you. And Jesus says, let the dead bury their dead. You follow me. And now he walks up to a man who hasn't cried out yet. I want to follow you. And he walks up to him, Matthew the tax collector now in that culture I would dare say pretty much everybody would say. Uh, probably the most disqualified man in the culture. Every not just the Jews but everybody in the Roman world hated tax collectors. They hated them Because the tax collectors is a really interesting system the Romans had actually pretty smart. They would actually sell franchises. Around the Roman world and, you know, for certain geographic areas and you could buy a franchise over a certain area and you got a group of strong armed men to go with you and you could squeeze taxes out of people. Now, what you had to do is every year you had to certain pass o- along to the Romans a certain amount of revenue. But anything you collected over that with the help of those strong armed men, you got to keep. Tax collectors were wealthy men. But they were really the legal version of the mafia. (laughs) And here is Jesus walking up to this man that I would dare say everybody in that town just hates him. He walks up to Matthew, the tax collector, sitting at the tax office and says to him, follow me. Jesus seeks him out and says, follow me. So... Instantly. So he arose and followed him. Now, what happened is Jesus sat at a table in the house. That be whose house? Matthew's house. Matthew's got a really nice house with lots of big tables, and Jesus is there at a banquet. As Jesus sat at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners of every kind came and sat down with him and his disciples. Table fellowship was the way you expressed acceptance in the Mediterranean world. You didn't sit down at the table with people that you weren't willing to accept. And embrace. Now, not necessarily accept and embrace as they are, but as they are going to become. And Jesus is sitting down with tax collectors, sinners of every sort and variety. And when the Pharisees saw it, now, he'd already just, the pre- paragraph before, slapped the, the, the scribes. I mean, they've gone running off. Now the guys that are left are the Pharisees, their partners. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? This indicates a welcoming of them. When Jesus heard that, he said to them, the Pharisees, Those who are well have no need of a physician but those who are sick. Now, let me ask you a question. How many people on planet Earth left to themselves could be called from heaven's viewpoint, well, healthy? None. How many, on the other hand, of the people inhabiting planet Earth think they're well and healthy in heaven's sight? Well, Pharisees are at the top of that list. They think they already have it made in the shade in their relationship with God. We got this covered. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? When Jesus heard that, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. And he's going to quote Hosea 6.6. To the so-called scripture authorities in Israel, have you ever read? Let me ask you, Mister uh, Pharisee, have you ever read the Bible? What do you mean? If I ever read the Bible, I'm the authority on what the Bible said. Have you never read the Bible? I mean, he is just already. Without quote, before the quote, he's already gone, whack, whack. (laughs) Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, but go and learn. May I suggest to you, Mr. Pharisee, that you sit down and actually open a Bible and read it? But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. You see, the Pharisees and the, and the Sadducees and the scribes, they were into sacrifice. What does that mean? We are into fulfilling the letter of the law in the outward worship of God. And then when we fulfilled the letter of the law in the outward worship of God, we're done. God is satisfied. By the way, that is a horrible affliction that afflicts the church. How many, I'll, I'll just use the word Christendom, in Christendom, in, in, among people who attend church regularly, how many of them have the mentality, okay, I will go to church every Sunday. I may even go to that midweek Bible study. I may even go to Sunday school but when I'm done, I'm done. I've satisfied God's demand on me, and I get the rest of the six and a half days of the week to serve myself. See, that's the Pharisees, Sadducees, scribes. When we're done, and that's, well, that's what religion is all about, no matter what God it is, is satisfying your God's demands, as you understand them. So you can then go and serve yourself. That's what sacrifice, when he says sacrifice, that's what he means. God prefers mercy. I, I, God, desire mercy and not sacrifice. I want you to be merciful to one another. I'm much more interested in that than the sacrifices you bring. And you go back and read the Sermon on the Mount. Through about three, four weeks ago, we heard a sermon on Matthew chapter 5. And what's it about? It's about rebuking these fellows and their misinterpretation and about serving one another. Hmm, how does that go? give to him who asks you and from him who wants to borrow from you, do not turn away. You mean I'm supposed to be merciful to people? I'm supposed to step forward and help them with their I think I'm wanna, you know, I think I'm let's get that lamb and let's go sacrifice. No. I want you to treat other people the way you want other people to treat you. And oh, by the way, if you treat other people the way you want to be treated by them, I will then treat you in that same merciful way. And so I am here sitting at the table with tax collectors and sinners of every kind offering them mercy i'm offering them the thing they most desperately need just as i gave to that paralytic forgiveness of sins and the scribes and the pharisees and the sadducees are just going (laughs) (laughs) that's just way too easy and besides that it would take all of our power away Go read the Bible, Jesus says. I prefer mercy to sacrifice. Be merciful to one another. And so you Bible scholars need to go back and read your Bibles. Well, may I suggest that to myself as well? Because what is our temptation when we see someone with a need moving right along? Instead, Jesus says we should be tender, now with wisdom, but we need to be tender to the needs of people. We prayed for a young lady who is right now in jail because of an addiction problem. And a self-will problem. And her sister asked us to pray for her. Why did she ask us to pray for her? So that she will know how best to serve, have mercy on her sister with God's wisdom. That is such a beautiful example of what we find right here. Serve one another. And the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees looked at Jesus who was the servant of all. Meeting every need brought. All you have to do is ask. Have somebody, and if you have to, have them carry you (laughs) on a stretcher to where you can ask. But ask, and I will have mercy. That's what Our God is like. More eager to have mercy on us than we are to ask for it. And that is how we are to be. More eager to have mercy on our fellows than they are even to ask for it. That's a challenge. But we have a Jesus who does that. We have a Jesus who does that. Let's pray together. Our Lord Jesus, we thank you. That you love mercy. You love mercy. We thank you as we read from Isaiah that you came and bore sin's penalty for us so that your Holy Father would and you would have perfect freedom to just simply dismiss the guilt of our sins because the debt, the fine, the penalty has already been paid. We thank you for that. That's how eager you are to have mercy. You already paid the fine. We thank you for that. We are asking that this week, every single person in this room, this week will have a mercy opportunity. A mercy opportunity. And by the help of your Holy Spirit, we will be alert to it and step forward and with wisdom engage in it as your servants. In fact, the ones who are to be replicas of you. We ask this of you. Jesus, our Savior. The one who had mercy on us. And all God's people said,